In today's session, we're excited to talk to you about three moments in time and decisions that really added up to a lot of the success at Microformulas. And we'll dive deeper into the formula that we talk about, what that means and what it can do for you and what it did for us and what it means and what it looks like to be an education first and media first company and the difference between documenting core values and creating them and how those can be impactful for you and your organization. You are listening to the Fifth Hammer Growth Podcast, where we help you find harmony and imperfection as you journey towards success in life and in business. Earlier, we shared moments in time, kind of decision-making frameworks of what brought us to microformulas. And now let's jump in, you know, in the season of running, grinding, building the company, growing it. What are some key, you know, moments in time or decisions or focuses that really helped us navigate our way, you know, to the growth that, that we saw there? And we'll just, we'll just start teasing some of these out. Yeah. You know, it's interesting as, as we were thinking through this, one of the, one of the things that that early on kept coming up, kept coming up, kept coming up was who are we as a company? Who's our identity? And, and I remember certain individuals uh, were saying, we need some core values. We need to, we need to figure this out. And I was always like, hold off. It'll come. And it never felt like, cause I I've been in situations where there was a mission statement and that mission statement. Was, mission, vision, values. Yeah. How many times do you hear that? Like, and, every business needs it. And yeah. it was always forced. So robotic. Yeah. And, and it was always, and, and to me, it was, it was almost, it, it, this was a fifth hammer moment because yeah. I was pushing back and I'm like, we're not ready for it. That'll, that, it'll manifest. It'll come. It'll show. Right. And, and really we started, I think the thing that was the catalyst to it is we started a book of the month club. Hmm. Right. And, and, well, the first book we read was Extreme Ownership. Yeah. And Extreme Ownership became almost our company Bible for our culture in a, in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, so much for when we started documenting what our core value was, Extreme Ownership was a core wow. value. Yeah. Right. But it was interesting because it got to the point where we were growing, where we were knowing who we were. We were starting to understand our own personal behaviors and the idea of sitting down and documenting our core values was important. Yeah. And I, what I love about that too, is like the, the business mantra of the world is you got to have a business plan. You got to have all this documented. You got to have all this in place before you see success, before you go out and play. And we kind of flipped that backwards a little bit of like, Hey, we were operating a successful seven bigger, seven figure business, growing it to eight. And we weren't documenting what we wanted it to be. We just documented how we were already operating, right? The core values, the personal core values that Dr. Todd Watts had, that Dr. J had, that you had, Ryan, and that as a company, we were striving for, not perfect in, right? But that we wanted to try to adopt and scale across anyone in the company and any new person potentially joining it. And I think there was power in that exercise of just thinking through what are we already doing? as individuals and as a, as a collective, because that's what culture is. Yeah. Culture is not what you put on a wall. Right. Culture isn't what you put in a, an employee handbook or in an onboarding process. It's how you actually act every day as an individual and as a group. Yep. 
And I, well, I'm glad you said that because one of my first day on the job was a leadership meeting where we were at, in part refining these core values and coming from, you know, I worked for a $4 billion supplement company or a fortune 1000. And like, there's all the, so much cliche, like organizational bureaucracy and things that people just say, you guys were actually, and I didn't know this at the time, but I remember kind of rolling my eyes that we were doing that. <laughs> I'm sure. And, first um, but then very quickly within the first couple of weeks, seeing that, oh, you guys are just documenting the culture as it is. Yeah. And there were many times I leaned on those to either give me permission to act in a way that I thought I needed to act to lead. Um, like I remember the extreme ownership kept, and that was another one that I thought was so cliche because people talk about that all the time. You guys actually did it. And our CEO really did it. You know, if you were wrong about something, you were the first person to raise your hand and say I was wrong. Right. And then, and then extreme, extreme ownership, uh, all the way up and down the chain by allowing us to be collaborative in how we developed our plans. I think that's actually the, the real gold nugget in extreme ownership. It's not, it's, it's not, yeah. I was wrong because you can actually, that can yeah. actually be a crutch yeah. by the way. Right. It, it is the collaborative nature of building the plan with the team all the way up and down the chain. So there's full buy-in. That's what extreme ownership I think is really is to me. And you guys, uh, didn't mean to hijack hijack the topic, but that's that's what I saw you guys really doing. But it's it's important too because the other side of it, in out of you know taking extreme ownership is one of our core values. the The other side of it was cover and move. I, I'm glad yeah, I was about to say that. You know what I mean? Yeah, I yeah. mean, you, dude, there's so many. You want to talk about a book that you can open up and just any chapter has impact on you. Cover and move, uh, leading up and down the chain of command. These were phrases and terms that we used daily within the company. And it was in, and we lived it. And that's what I loved about how we documented. And I, and, and I love the word that, and Spencer, you, you said this first is we didn't create core values. We documented core values. Yeah. Right. And the fact that, that those ideas of cover and move and how do we lead up and down the chain of command? It was always, it was always there. I think the other one that was, that was so cliche, but we lived it was people first. Yeah. Right. And that was a challenging one. Well, they're because, all challenging. Right? Well, at the end of the day, core values create a framework for your employees and your team members to hold you accountable as a leader. Yeah. And you're not perfect and the company's not going to be perfect and other people aren't. And so like it creates tension. It creates natural like uh, dissonance. Right. And yeah. I remember, I remember that one being so challenging because how do you define people first, people first. and what well, person are you focused yeah, on? What yeah. And what, because here's the yeah. problem, right? Is if you're truly people first across the board, how do you put your customers first and your customer support team first when they're trying, when there's a conflict, right? right? Conflict in, it challenges people first. Yeah. Right. Because yeah, we want to put the, the customer's always right, but not really because freaking customers are wrong. They're flat out <laughs> like 90% of the time they're wrong. Yeah. So the idea is, and, and, and we use this constantly is how would you want to be treated if it was you, right? I get where you're coming from, but how would you want, how, yeah. how would you want to be treated? And that's the idea of putting people first is how would you want? And then you came in and I love this one. Spencer was in, in the realms of people first is we always talk about the golden rule, but what's the platinum rule, you know? And then it's like, dude, you got to treat people the way they want to be treated. Which, which is challenging for me, yeah. you know, because, um, I don't know how you want to be treated. Right. And, and it's hard to know. Right. And, and it's hard and scenarios know. where those two things, their opposite beliefs 
the golden rule, treat others how you want to be treated. And the platinum rule, treat others how they want to be treated. Those are opposite opposing beliefs, but they're scenarios and situations where one works and one doesn't, and when the other one works and the other doesn't, right? Yeah. And we could talk all day, but let- Can I drop a quick yeah, side note yeah. though? If you think the book Extreme Ownership is cliche, go pick up Jocko's, it's still still Jocko, but go pick up Leadership Strategy and Tactics. It wasn't until I read that book that I understood Cover and Move. I had a team at the time that was very combative and, and disagreeable. Um, and we were, we were kind of running loosey goosey. And then I remember texting you guys one morning on like a Saturday, cause I was reading that. I was like, oh my God, I know what, what we haven't, what I haven't preached as a leader is cover and move. And it, but it came out of that book. So I just wanted to drop that. Real no, quick, I, I, think- I appreciate that. And, that. and that's the thing about core values, uh, especially if you could document them for your company that they they don't really mean anything unless you internalize yeah. them, unless you figure and i think that's the one thing that we do and even well. when you do and, and even when you try and you will fail and you won't live your core values all of the time you have to be prepared as a leader as a business owner um for people saying like you're not living up to these core values. yeah they're going to call them it's going to happen yeah even no matter what your intentions and your your efforts are yeah you'll so, think you are knocking it out of the park and you'll find out from your team. Well, actually, some people will use them against you. Oh, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. And that's the thing. As part of that, Spencer, you you told me constantly that people hear you like you're talking through a megaphone and they watch you through a microscope. Yeah. Right. And that's that concept is is how true are you to the core values that you freaking put up on the wall? Because they walk by them every day. They read them. And they're going to either hold you accountable and they analyze or, you under a microscope or hold yeah. you hold, hold them against you. Yeah. Right. And so as a leader, uh, here's right now as a leader, if, if you're not willing to live up to the core values that you've set for your company, then get them out of your freaking company. Cause they Absolutely. don't need Yeah. Just don't even have yeah. them. Just yeah. don't even have them. Totally. So that was one of the, I, I think that was one of the first things that we did really well because it set the stage for the culture. I think the other thing that that we did very very well early on um is we acknowledged that we had uh mega influencers in jay and todd right right um there's this whole influencer marketing is there's a lot of good and bad about the term and phrase of influencer marketing there's a lot going on about how do you how do you truly manage influencers and how do you get it and i don't I believe that influence marketing is, is, has its place, but in order for it to truly, truly work, those influencers need to be a part of your company in, in every way, shape or form. Jay and Todd were the best influencers that I've ever seen in any company, but they were owners. They had an equity stake. So they were all in and, and they also approached it with the mindset of humility. Yeah. Like they knew it was necessary, but they didn't necessarily want the fame and, and the accolades, right. right? And the attention. And they um, weren't counting their freaking likes or their followers. Right. I right. watched Todd shed a tear, a genuine tear and multiple tears over customers. Like that's how it was genuinely right. to help. Right. And you can't fake that. And that's right. what the, the customers saw that and they were attracted to that. And that was the other mindset that pervased the culture, but to, it was a conscious decision that we are an education company yeah. and, and a media company, right? Yeah. And it was those two things that came from you and from Dr. J that those were decisions and those were things we said that impacted 
thousands of other little decisions. Yeah. And that, and that was, I mean, you think about that concept when you have the power of these two amazing influencers and I joke about, I pimp them out like freaking crazy. Every time we could turn around, we had them on camera. Every time we turned around, we had them creating content and, and we became that media company first right? We became that education company first. We happened to sell supplements. Supplement selling was a byproduct of what we were truly doing. If you look at the day-to-day activity uh, of the company, it was all around building content, creating content, like telling the stories and and educating the audience. And and it was the, it was the weekly live with the docs from the, the D to C side. We had customer after customer after customer. They would come on and answer questions. Yeah. And again, this predated me. So thinking about coming in from the outside, looking in, I heard you say we're a media company first. And I rolled my eyes because I've heard Gary V say that since 2006. And I've been a part of many companies that say that and they just don't do it. So the proof is in the actions. Like as I'm, you know, if, if you're listening to this and you're thinking about, you know, where do I go next? And you're thinking about your criteria for what makes a good company, just look at the actions don't listen to as much as what they're saying. Like you guys were genuinely flying to locations, creating documentaries around the customers, telling the stories, but not just telling the stories, man. Like this wasn't like a testimonial. This was like, this was like a full emotional story. And the reason why I say emotional stories, because I think as marketers, we miss this point. Emotion is what causes, is what creates the flywheel of belief. Because it it lowers the barrier, that skeptical barrier, low enough to get over top of it and really pay attention and make a connection. Hmm. So I don't know. I just think that's that's really that's an important distinction because we talk about stories in education. I think the stories come first because that's what raises the belief and opens the mind enough to pay attention to the education. Well, and the education yeah. got so big to the point where we decided we were going to do our own event, our own practitioner event. And we opened up a, we, you know, and, and it was, I, to this day, I don't even remember eco being how eco came across, but it was extraordinary, um, clinical outcomes, exponential, exponential clinical outcomes. And it was, it was the, the concept of our own event. And we had this vision of, we're going to have 5,000 doctors on this thing. Right. And we, our first one, uh, our first one was standing room only because Todd kept saying, yeah, just come, just come, just come, just come. And we had 90 people in the room. Mm-hmm. Um, by the time we had our event and exited, we had 800 people in the room with another three or 2,500 on virtual. This last one that they just did this last year, it hit 5,000 numbers. I mean, and we grew education was a huge part of how we grew. And I think companies need to realize the importance of in, in today's environment of educating their and, and taking an active role in that education um, and having somebody that that customer, whether it is a, a D to C or a practitioner in the health space industry. And I think it's the same across the board where they can find trust because I yeah. remember sitting outside of an event waiting. We just got to this, uh, the, this hotel and the location was in place. And I was sitting there talking with somebody who showed up early. They got there the night before and they were getting their hotel room and Todd walked around the corner and it was a Beatles effect. This girl, this woman, grown woman started <laughs> hyperventilating because she saw Todd and that dude as, as the biggest heart that he is walked up to her 
gave her a hug, said, thank you so much for being here, knew her name. And she almost fainted. And I was like, (laughs) that, that right there is the impact when you start, when you start putting education in media and you start creating relationship with your customers that I've never seen in any other company. Yeah. And it was so powerful for these people too, because they had been told so many times, nothing was wrong with them, you know? And then Todd and Jay basically affirmed the feeling that they had and made them feel whole again, you know, put them on a path. And that's, yeah, it was so powerful. It's, it's unlike anything I've ever seen. Yeah. And it's hard for other businesses to do that, something like that, you know, but I, but I still think there are lessons in, in the story and then the education and then the education, not just around your product, but the education to help them solve a problem that is by the way, related to the the solution your your product provides. And uh, let's maybe talk about one more, you know, um, the education focus and the core value focus really spanned across the two uh, channels we had in both D2C and in wholesale, you know, and um, was was a powerful tool, but there was other powerful tools, powerful decisions. And one that you brought in, you know, some of those were, you kind of came in in the middle of the core values. You came in after really the focus on education media, but one that you really brought to the table, Dave, was something that we call the formula, right? And we talk about um, quite a bit and leveraged a ton. Um, But, Tell us about what the formula is and, and we can talk more about how that was a decision to really implement it in the company and, and how that helped our success. Yeah. So, man, I wish I invented this, but I, I swiped it from Drew Sanaki, who is now, I think, the CEO of Postpilot. Um, he's had multiple like nine figure, uh, been CEO of nine figure e-commerce businesses. I think he got it from Jay Abraham, who said there are three ways to grow a business, get more customers, get them to buy more and get them to buy more often. Well, the funny thing about that is it actually breaks down into a formula where if you take your customer volume, so the total volume of customers, repeat and first time, and you then you take your average order value across all those. And now we can break down like how valuable these metrics are, but just know we scaled to a $50 million business pretty fast on the back of this. If you take those two, customer volume and AOV, and then you take your buyer frequency, which is how many times over the course of a period of time, somebody makes a purchase, let's just say in a year in this example, and you multiply those three together, you will get a revenue number. You will, If you do it right now, you will actually get your current revenue number and it will maybe plus or minus a few thousand dollars. But I, man, I had brought that to the table for like almost 10 years uh, to different founders and CEOs and nobody really embraced it. And you guys not like to Ryan's point, you guys not only embraced it, like it was everything for us. Yeah. And the beauty of that formula is it's not really a forecasting tool, although it can be used as that. It's a focus tool. Yeah. And I and I've tried to think like, you know, there are some really smart people in e-commerce. Taylor Holiday at Common Thread Collective is is like one of my favorite um people to follow. I just love how he thinks. He's just so brilliant. And he's got a, a version of this that I think is is really great for forecasting in general, but this was our formula customer volume times AOV times buyer frequency equals revenue was a way for us to catch the wind without wrecking the ship. And what I mean by that is in in an environment where you're growing so exponentially fast, it's all you can do some days just to hang on. And and in in those environments, your plethora of opportunity can sometimes wreck you as well and cause bottlenecks. And it was like the perfect marriage of Ryan as the CEO and his 
belief of and core value of extreme ownership, but also giving us space to operate allowed that formula to be successful because we would, I would just go to my team and say, they would say, well, what are the goals? And uh, we would sit down together and, and collaborate on this formula. We would set targets for customer volume, for AOV and for buyer frequency. And because we hired people that were experienced enough to understand how to execute against those tactically, they would just run. And then I would turn around and report what we did to you guys. And we'd be like, cool. And it was just, it kept us focused because at any given time, it wasn't like we need to do influencer marketing. We need to do YouTube ads. We need, it wasn't like a tactical discussion. It was, we need to increase customer volume by 20% this quarter to hit this revenue goal. Oh, and by the way, if we increase buyer frequency by 0.025, we can blow that goal out of the water. Okay, what's that mean, guys? That means we need to work on our acquisition funnels. We need to work on our offers. We need to increase our ad spend by X. And then we might need to run a couple of promos towards the middle of each month to increase buyer frequency. And then we, it really just guided everything we did. So I- And, and uh, also for me, the thing, the cool thing about the formula is that, so I, it, it, most people don't, believe me when I say this, but I actually am a pretty logical person. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, your, your optimism overcomes your... <laughs> but logic, when it comes down to it, it's like, logic. it's, it's, it, math makes sense to me. Math is, math yeah. is, math just makes sense to me. It's, it's the chess player in my mind. I love playing chess. I grew up playing chess with my, my dad. And when you introduce the formula um, and tied revenue to that structure, it just opened the entire concept of marketing to something that I could make sense. Simplifies it. Yeah. Well, it turned right. it into an engineering exercise for you, I it think. It yeah. really did. And not only that, but then you could turn around and because with a formula from a programming um, standpoint, I can tie in algorithms to each of those individual formulas and, and, and start playing, playing with different structures and constructs that are built around, yeah. around this formula. So it's like, Okay, um, today we're going to write a function that will increase um, buyer frequency, and and how do we do that? What what functions can we iterate on that will increase buyer frequency? Yeah. Right, and it just becomes it then becomes a it it becomes a, a a program a code structure that allowed us that allowed me to really understand what the marketing team was doing and how they were doing it. Yeah. Right. Because and the other thing that I think the formula had a huge impact on was in the AOV side of things, because initially we were selling individual products and, and we had products that would work together. And and until we saw and understood how do we increase average order volume? That's when the idea of kits came into play. Yeah. That's when the idea of protocol came into play, because if you could bring these together, I mean, we increased when we when we initiate uh, initiated the protocol. And the product protocol, our average order volume went through the roof mm -hmm. because the people understood they they had their most most customers will have their the product that they love, right? But right. they don't understand how the whole thing works together. Yeah. When we introduced the protocol, it was, I mean, initially it was like an eighteen hundred dollar package. I mean, it was expensive. Yeah. yeah. And we broke it down into month structures, and you could buy this, but it dramatically increased our average order volumes. And it was those exercises based on that formula that allowed us to take the company to the next level. And it was the, it was the marriage of the formula and the education. Talk about the roadmap to health that Dr. Jane, Dr. Todd kind of introduced and mapping protocols to that. 
the marriage of those two things are, you know, created that flywheel created, you know, the, the made the wave even bigger, but there's probably dozens more of pivotal kind of moments in time or decisions that were made throughout the course of the five years of growing that business. And I'm sure we'll talk about more. Um, but I think we should, you know, leave it at that for today. And also just tease, like there were plenty of mistakes we made along the way, oh, right? yeah. plenty of things we did wrong. And we're going to be sharing those too, because we don't want this just to be like roses and butterflies and like, Hey, look at us. Like we did something cool, but like, we hope we can also share some of the things we didn't do that were, that we should have, or, or we did and were wrong that you can avoid and learn from too. I'll so. just put a plug in there. The biggest mistake um, I made early on was not hiring a, a chief of a chief financial officer, a, mm. a CFO cool. um, initially. We'll I mean, dive in. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the, the, the early on, yep. I mean, if anybody's starting a company, running a company, if your financials aren't dialed, and you don't have a clear picture of where things are going. I, I had a good framework. Yeah, you had constraints. I had constraints and a good framework. But and and when we hired a CFO, we were working on building those constraints in there. But I wish I wish we would have been able to hire him earlier or or a CFO earlier so that we had a better, clearer picture. Yeah. And really did forecasting, really did some of the things that we didn't do. Especially if you're going for an exit, which you weren't really going for at the time. But yeah. but yeah. Totally. Yeah. That was the awesome. big, I, so three really positive ones. One big mistake was I would have hired, if doing it all over again, I would have hired a CFO earlier. Love it. That's a wrap.